you desire to attend Bible college or seminary, but know that it would be incredibly difficult to uproot your family and move somewhere? Maybe you desire to attend seminary, but you don't want to leave your local congregation. Let me tell you about my seminary, Whitfield Theological Seminary. Whitfield is a conservative, confessional, classical, reformed seminary who wants to come alongside congregations and assist them in raising up a pastor. The training of a minister should be done alongside of a congregation. Whitfield offers online classes so that you can fulfill your calling without having to move your family or abandon your church. Go check them out at www.reformed.info. That is www.reformed.info. Tell them you heard about them on The Daily Brew. We at The Daily Brew take the Bible and the study of it very seriously. Have you ever wondered where we or our special guests go when we want to dive into God's Word more deeply? We go to Logos, the best Bible software available. From in-depth word studies in the original languages to commentaries from scholars, both new and old. There are lexicons and grammars and sermons and collected works of heroes of the faith. And even ancient texts for the serious Bible students. Never before has so many great tools been bundled together into one software. To learn more about this incredible ministry, call 888-390-7341. That's 888-390-7341. While you're there, go ahead and tell them that you heard about this incredible software on The Daily Brew. Listen up, Daily Brew subscribers and listeners. I want to tell you about our newest partner, Audio Blocks and Video Blocks. They're an incredible resource if you're looking for background footage, background audio. We use them for all our video and audio uh, needs. If you're needing background clips, if you're needing short footage for any video that you're making for your business or your church, or just looking for background noises for putting something together, they have everything you need, a huge selection. You have to go check them out. Go check them out at audioblocks.com or videoblocks.com. Are you looking for something fun to do on these hot summer days? Are you looking for something fun for the whole family? Go check out Ripley's Aquarium in the Smokies. This has been rated the number one aquarium in the country. If you're looking to waddle with the penguins or sleep with the sharks, this is the place for you. For an up-close view, check out their glass bottom boat. Ripley's Aquarium in the Smokies has something for the whole family. For more information, go to ripleyaquariums.com. You are busy. You are always on the go. But are you making time for you? The Y is dedicated to helping you stay active, live better, and find the best possible version of you. From basketball courts to functional training space, indoor pools, and yoga studios, the best of Knoxville is right in your backyard. Group classes and personal trainers that will challenge and encourage you. The Y has something for everyone. Join the Y and get unlimited access to all five locations. From the heart of downtown Knoxville to Farragut and Halls, all with no contracts. For a better us.
This is The Daily Brew. We are here with uh, Dr. Brian Arnold. He is a dear friend. We both attended a church together in Louisville, Kentucky while he was uh, working on his PhD. He is now a professor of church history at the University of Phoenix. Brian, thank you very much for joining the show. And how are you doing, brother? I'm great, Adam. And uh, Phoenix Seminary. Phoenix Seminary. I was, I was, wow. <laughs> University. Completely different. University a little bit. Of Phoenix, that's right. Yeah, University of Phoenix is a school in Louisville. So, sorry, that's my, my confusion. I'm accidentally tying these two cities together. Sorry. <laughs> the first question I want to ask you um, is: uh, We are going to we want to discuss. I know you recently had a book published on Cyprian, but one of the first things we want to ask relating to that is: Why do you think it's important for pastors or lay people in general to study church history? Why Why does church history matter to us today? Yeah, I think there's a couple of really good reasons for that. Um, first of all. It, we, we, if we don't know the past, and a lot of people just kind of assume, you know, it's my pastor, it's my church, you know, however old one of those are is kind of the history of the church as far as they know it. But to, to understand and, and to, to search out um, those streams that, that have been there for 2,000 years um, really are critical for understanding not only doctrine and the way it's developed and understood today, um, but also just for faith and practice. And so, I mean, Kenneth Stewart just wrote a book recently in Church of Ancient Roots where he's showing how a lot of times evangelicals are leaving evangelicalism for uh, churches that, that can demonstrate their past at times better than a lot of evangelical churches want to today. I think what it shows is that in our generation, people really do want uh, to feel that connection. Um, they they, they want to know that, that what they believe has been believed for 2,000 years. So, so that's a really important reason, I think. Um, but particularly, I study the fathers, and I think that time period is critical because the uh, the world as it is today is it's moving towards secularism and away from kind of traditional Judeo-Christian values is beginning to look a lot more like the ancient world than, than anything in the last 1,500 years. And so we, we kind of need the faith of the fathers and see some of the debates they kind of cycled through in order to um, understand our day even better and, and just know how to communicate the faith in this kind of culture. I want to get to Cyprian, but something you said I kind of want to piggyback on and pick your brain on a little. Um, there seems to be this tendency uh, or, or thought, I guess I would say, uh, within the church that we want to get back to the patristics or get back to the earliest church or somehow or another the earliest church had it right and we want to be like those because somehow or another they were closer to Jesus' time, so we want to get back to the way that they did it. Uh, do you think this tendency is a good thing? Do you, do you agree with it? Do you think we need to get back to the way the patristics were? I know a lot of their doctrine and stuff like that wasn't really established because they haven't faced heresies, so they haven't uh, had to articulate um, really what they believe and why they believe it. So does, does that make sense, what, what I'm trying to ask? Do you think it's good or this this thought process is uh, is correct? It's a kind of nonsense. Um, just like it's nonsense not to study history, it's nonsense to kind of take a period of history and elevate it to the point of, like, this is when the church had it together. There's no period of time when the church really had it together. Um, you, can, you can see certain ways in which the church did tend to start deviating I think, from New Testament teaching in the early church. Uh, we even see that in Cyprian, I think. Uh, so, so that kind of like primitive, we got to get back, we got to see what the early church was doing. 
is not helpful. I mean, you think for, for a lot of the second century, uh, many Christians probably did not even have access to the entire canon. So they never even read the entire Bible. And so, uh, really, you need to see kind of the struggle. Appreciate them for their own time, I guess is what I would say. Appreciate them for faith that they were willing to surrender their lives for. Appreciate them for trying to develop doctrine uh, in the midst of uh, of being like the first generation of people to try to do this. So I think we, we appreciate them where they're at, but then I, I think we also appreciate, um, you know, the Reformation and Puritanism and American church history. I think each of these different epochs of time give us really something helpful for construction of doctrine today. And, and we get to learn the pitfalls, right? They could not see their own pitfalls because they were in them. We needed later times. And, and you think about the reformers and how they loved the fathers and they used them often, but they were able to see their blind spots as well. Uh, just like generations in the future would be able to look back at us and see some areas that we got right and areas that we got wrong. So, no, I don't, I don't love that, that idea of people saying, well, we need to return to that, uh, as though it was even monolithic, as though there was like one thing. There were many voices saying many different things, and so it's not quite as homogenous as people like to think it was. So, correct me if I'm wrong in this. Now, Cyprian, uh, obviously one of the early church fathers, um, he was a little after 200 years in, uh, within the church, or after Christ. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong in that. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. So, he, yeah. he's born around 200 or so. So... Why Why did you go about this task, and why did you, you devote your, your time to studying and, and writing and researching uh, a Cyprian? Why does he matter for the church today? Why um, should the church, and why does the church need to study Cyprian today? Sure. I think uh, two, two main reasons really stuck out to me um, as it related to, to the importance of Cyprian. Uh, the first is uh, dealing with Persecution as it continues to, to show itself throughout the world. Um, I even mentioned this in the, the introduction. You look at these ancient pockets of Christianity that, uh, like places like Iraq. I, in fact, I just sat on a dissertation defense of a believer who's a priest, a, a, a um, an Orthodox priest from Iraq, and his family had to flee because of persecution. I believe one of his family members was even killed in it. He told me that you know the church in Iraq had gone from a million down to a hundred thousand. Um, and so, you know, you imagine eventually persecution will abate. It always does. And, and eventually Christians will probably come back. And then you have these kinds of questions. You know, what do you do with, with somebody who, who um, maybe uh, professed faith in, in Islam so they wouldn't be killed? And now persecution cools and they come back to the church. Well, Cyprian dealt with the same kind of conflict. So uh, persecution had broken out. Christians had to sacrifice. Some of them did sacrifice. Some of them lied and got a fake certificate saying that they had sacrificed. While other Christians lost their lives for it, they were persecuted, they were in prison, they were exiled, all these different types of things. And, and the church was beginning to fracture because um, after about 18 months of persecution in Odysseus, people are coming back. And you can imagine this, uh, I always had this, this picture of this lonely woman um, sitting in, in, in her spot of the church where her husband used to sit next to her, he was killed in the persecution. Um, and, and now somebody else wants to come back into the church who fled or who, um, you know, sacrificed. And they just kind of want to, you know, just be brought back in. Hey, we're all grace and forgiveness kind of people. And, and, and just seeing how that could tear apart a church. So um, as, as persecution still exists, obviously worldwide. And, I mean, if we're going to enter into any form of persecution, I'm not saying it's gloom and doom, but if, if there's going to be any kind of pressure put on the church, I think these, these are going to be important issues 
uh, again, that we're going to face. Uh, the second reason I think he's really important is for ecclesiology. So uh, I'm going to pick on the city I'm in now a little bit. Phoenix is kind of the land of the Bible church. So that's kind of that phenomenon of the mid-20th century, I think really out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, where, and these churches kind of popped up all over. So most, it feels like most churches in, in Phoenix are Bible churches that really don't have any kind of, uh, rich ecclesiology. They have no denominational ties. They, they're kind of what I was talking about before, where people don't get a, a sense of its rootedness. And, and I think what Cyprian does, he's the first person in the history of the church to reflect on what is the nature of the church. And for him, it was the unity of the church. And so he wrote a, a work on the unity of the church and, and tried to show that that's a fundamental characteristic of the church. That's why it can't break off into factions. And that's why, um, you know, there's, there's one faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And it's through, uh, like what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, you know, this uh, one baptism one Lord and Savior, this idea of unity was really important for him. So, um, you know, the famous passage in Deuteronomy uh, 6-4 where it says the Lord God is, is one and one of the most significant passages for a Jew. And Paul there in Ephesians 4 says uh, we are to be one, uh, the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6-4, we are to be one because God himself is one. So our unity is a reflection of God himself. Exactly. And so Cyprian um, thought deeply about the church, and I think a lot of times today we hear it a lot. It's almost cliche. The church is kind of take it or leave it in our culture. Um, so to, to really kind of retrieve somebody who thought the church was significant and and argued eloquently for it, I think this is something we need to hear today. In my opinion, that alone is a good reason to read Cyprian, just the importance of the church and uh, viewing the church uh, or having a higher view of the church. It seems in our day and age that there's this tendency to think that, hey, uh, it's just me uh, and the Lord. I don't really need the church. Um, there's really no need to commit or covenant with uh, a local body that, uh, you know, it's a, almost a spiritual idea or concept that people are putting out there that, uh, um it's just me and Jesus, and that's all that matters. And when we come to the New Testament or even the Bible, we hear a completely different narrative. Uh, the majority of the New Testament uh, is written to churches or pastors of churches. There's over 100 uh, one another passages just in the New Testament alone. Is that this idea of uh, Christianity in isolation is a, is an unbiblical concept? And I would say that alone is is worth reading Cyprian and as you're explaining it. That's right. Yeah, and Cyprian, you know his. If people know of him, usually it's his two famous maxims. Uh, you cannot have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. And there's no salvation outside the church. And so just showing kind of the centrality that the church had in his thinking. Um, you know, I think a lot of people hear that today and they want to react against it because we don't want to add justification by faith alone. Well, fair enough. But I think as much as we can own what he was saying, I think we should. And that is, uh, it's not just. And not just this kind of broad membership in the universal church, but more specifically that there's a local body to which you belong and are accountable to and under submission of. So, Usually when I hear those statements, uh, it's usually in a Roman Catholic context. Uh, context and... Um, but I think if we if we listen to if we listen to those comments, I don't think an evangelical should have a problem with those comments. Those are very much biblical comments and concepts. The fact that uh, salvation is within the church, um, I think that we we need to get back to a higher view of the church that uh, we no longer are seeing it. Kind of just like we were talking about earlier, this isolationism concept is that all too often people view salvation divorced from the local church, and there's not really a need for the local church yet. Over and over again. 
in the New Testament, we see very much we're called into covenant or called to covenant with one another. We're called into a community. Christ dies for a body, uh, not just individuals. Uh, yes, he dies for individuals, but also we're called into a body of believers. We're called to suffer with one another. We're called to... Uh, to bear one another's burdens. We're called to rebuke and confront one another in sin. It's very much a communal. We're called into a body, not just into individualism. So, so I've never had a huge problem with those comments as long as uh, you're careful in using them, I guess. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's just people want to be really uh, careful not to yeah. let, you know, church membership bleed into justification. So what is salvation? Well, sure, right? But, I mean, if it is Christ's bride and he died for his bride, then to be a believer is to belong to the bride of Christ universally, but then as it manifests itself in the New Testament, it seems to be in the life of the local church. I like what you said there about not allowing uh, church membership to bleed into justification. I've never worded it that way or heard it worded that way, but I completely agree with you. That is very good. So, one other question, uh, or another question we had for you is, um, what other topics, can I give us uh, maybe an outline of what other things you discuss uh, in this book? Sure. So, I mean, the first chapter, I just kind of give an outline of his life. I, I assume most people are not that familiar with Cyprian, so kind of try to set him historically as best I can in the third century, which was a pretty crazy century as far as just ancient history goes. Uh, a lot of scholars have called it the age of anxiety um, because... Hey. Just, just so, sorry to interrupt you there. Um, just for clarification, he came out of a, a pagan lifestyle later in life. Is that is that correct? That's right. That's right. I mean, I think a lot of people think that he might have been in his 40s even when he converted. So he is in some sort of an aristocratic kind of family. And so when he gets converted, that's why people are so excited to see him elevated to the position of bishop before he kind of climbed the normal rungs of the ecclesial ladder. Because here's a guy who came from a position of power and authority within the town of Carthage. So now he's a Christian. Now let's get him into kind of a place of authority in the church. So and he, um, his, his earliest biographer, biographers, a contemporaneous uh, person with him, goes through some of that conversion thing and talks about um, how challenging it was for Cyprian to convert, and yet he found his life unfulfilling. So Cyprian even has this comment. He has his own little biography in a letter to Donatus when he first converted, and he talks about this uh, drinking from a jeweled goblet, and he sighs at this banquet. So he, here he is surrounded by all this wealth and riches, but he recognizes it's not fulfilling for him. And so at some point in time, Jerome tells us that he came across the book of Jonah and uh, through the, a man named Caecilius, and, and it led to his conversion, and uh, probably in the late 240s, and came to the position of bishop, then the persecution broke out, then a plague broke out, which was devastating uh, around the Mediterranean. And it's actually, a lot of people call it the Plague of Cyprian. And then uh, another persecution broke out, and that's when he was martyred. So that I set all that out in, in Chapter 1, and then we kind of go over in the book, um, in Chapter 2, a couple of the controversies that really um, were were pivotal for, for him. Mainly the, this one of the laps, like what do you do with people who fell in persecution, and then this rebaptism issue. Um, do you have to rebaptize people who have fallen? And then a whole chapter on the church, because that's obviously critical for him. His view of baptism, he does seem to have an early view of infant baptism um, that even deals with with original sin, uh, which is significant. As I was prepping for this, uh, it sounds as if uh, Cyprian holds to like a baptismal regeneration. Is that is that correct? 
I think a lot of the fathers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tried to set out an Ordo Salutis for him as best I could in uh, the second to last chapter. And I think you do have to put baptism in there. I think if you did not have baptism in there, he would not uh, recognize that. So I, I do think it's, salvation for him is a gracious act of God, but but that we, we lay hold of salvation by faith, but we're actually saved in baptism, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're in the church, which is kind of an agent of salvation. So he doesn't really flesh it out. I mean, we can't put too many systematic categories where he doesn't. But at the same time, trying to figure out how he thought through those things. But yeah, I, I think for a lot of the fathers, baptism would have been seen as regenerative in some way. So, uh, and then I, I discussed him on the Christian life, things like prayer and virtue and martyrdom as, as what, what does that look like to, to live for Jesus? And then just try, kind of try to put him in contemporary, you know, how does he help us today kind of thing. So that's the general flow. That is that is very helpful. So we always try to toss in some fun questions uh, just about sure. you. I know uh, you're teaching at uh, the university. I'm joking. Phoenix <laughs> Seminary. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Phoenix Seminary. Um, what's uh, so? What's the weather out there year round? So uh, what are you guys at? I know we're talking before. Brutal to quite brutal. Yeah. Uh, so May it really begins to, to ratchet up. So we'll probably have upper 90s to low 100s in May. June is like the hottest month, so that's when we get like 120 degree days. Still really dry then. And then we get monsoon season from July through September. So when I heard that, I thought like, you know, jungle monsoon kind of season. Not that at all. I think we had two or three inches of rain the whole time during our Mm. quote unquote monsoon. Uh, But it does raise the humidity a, a bit compared to the rest of the year. And, you know, once it once it goes over 100, I usually tell people you can figure at least 100 days over 100 wow. in a row, in a row. So, like, back where, you know, where we were at in Kentucky, you know, you might get a stretch where the heat index is over 100 and it's awful, but it breaks. Even the nights and the mornings, it breaks. Here, it's just kind of like this oven effect all the time. And so you wake up, you go outside in the summer, and it's 100 degrees, and it's just, yeah, it can be brutal. But then... Uh, our president describes it like as soon as November 1st comes around, the angels return, the temperature knocks off pretty quickly, and from November, really through April, it's gorgeous and, and about perfect, and which is why we get all the, the Canadians and Minnesotians coming down. Okay last, okay, last fun question for you, and I'm going to throw you under the bus on this one. So, um, I recall a story of uh, one time you stealing uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem's Bible. Could you tell us uh, this story? I have no recollection of the question now. Um, yeah, so being being a really good seminary professor, I, uh, I, I teach hermeneutics as well. And so um, the first day of hermeneutics class this past fall, and, uh, you know, why, why need a Bible for biblical interpretation, right? So I, <laughs> I go into class, and all of a sudden I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, I do not have my Bible. I forgot my Bible today. And so we all, uh, right now we're building a campus, so we all kind of share an office. And I went in there to see who had a Bible that was still there, and Wayne's Bible was there. So I borrowed his his <laughs> Bible and, and used it. And, uh, and eBay. That was a holier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was, it was a holier lecture for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> amen. Amen. Well, Brian, always a joy to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining the show, man. Of course, Adam. Thanks for having me.